Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you and only you are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. So glad you can make it. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. And if you haven't had a chance, and even if you have, head over to my website full of free resources at thelastsymptom.com. While you're there, and if you're so inclined, make a donation to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast. Now, today we have a very special guest. A formerly educated psychologist from India is joining us. She's somebody that I have a lot of admiration for. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Archana from India. Hi, Archana. Hi, my ears have actually turned a little red right now <laughs> after hearing that introduction. Thank you so much. Well, you know, if I'd had more time this morning, I would have lengthened that out and really, really built you up. You built me up enough right now. <laughs> so let's get some personal stuff out of the way. You just got married. Yes, November, November 2018, 25th November to be precise. Uh, and how's that going? Very well, very good. We've just moved to a new place and I'm very excited about a lot of things. And yeah, it's going very well. Are you still in the honeymoon honeymoon phase? Uh, we've dated for three years. Uh, so some of our <laughs> honeymoon phase was actually covered then. I think we're in the figuring out life phase right now. So. Gotcha. Well, we're so happy for you. Now, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you come across me, uh, your experience as a psychologist, your schooling in that area and and so on. Should I go in order or randomly? You know, whatever makes you feel best. Okay. So um, when I was uh, young, uh, I had uh, anorexia nervosa. I was uh, very ill. I lost a ton of weight. I was really skinny and I went through a very, very hard time. I'll elaborate on that if an opportunity comes up for it. But at that point of time, I think in the 90s is when the internet had just launched and I read a lot of support groups and I learned about anorexia. Nobody in India knew what it was. My parents didn't know what to do. They were trying to force feed me. It was a very bad time. I didn't know what was going on with me. And uh, at that point of time, um, I just had finished my exams and I was contemplating what to do. I got a, you know, a med- I got a pre-medical seat. And I wanted to do medicine at that point, but uh, I wasn't having the health to keep up with that. And uh, it, uh, mental health as a profession really called out to me because, you know, I was suffering so much and nobody was even aware of what was going on. People, you know, some psychiatrists pre- prescribed some medicines which weren't useful and I uh, would spiral down and I, I had no help. And then there was this community of people I would speak to on the Internet, uh, women from different parts of the world who would of- offer support. And uh, I think they were the main reason why I became better. I thought I completely kicked anorexia because, you know, I started eating healthy. I started working out. I started, you know, thinking differently. And uh, yeah, but it was much many, many years later that I discovered that anorexia was actually a stem of a much larger issue, uh, which is BPD. 
And uh, I had no idea about it because uh, the rest of my life was completely normal. Everything was good. In fact, I'm a total extrovert. I do a lot of, you know, my career is smooth. All of that was good. But uh, my personal relationships were getting affected. And in 2012, um, I had what you call an arranged marriage in India. And uh, he was a great guy. And, uh, you know, uh, this guy really wanted to marry me, chased me around for a long time. And uh, yeah, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted him, but I wanted his affection. I wanted that attachment. I wanted him to constantly love me the way he did. And I think I said yes, just for that reason. I got married and uh, for the wrong reasons. And uh, in one year, it all fell apart, crashing around me. And that's when I realized something is drastically wrong with how I relate. And then I started introspecting about all my relationships and I realized something is really wrong with me. And that's when I, uh, you know, uh, took several tests, uh, went to a psychiatrist, uh, figured out maybe I have borderline and, uh, you know, I need I need further help. And in the process of doing that, I've been, you know, not completely satisfied with everything that the medical community tells me, obviously, since I've, I've also studied as a psychologist. I always felt there was more. I always felt that this, you know, has gotten a very bad name and, uh one fine day, I was Googling BPD on Quora and I hit upon, uh, you know, Brian Barnett and I read some of your answers and I remember sharing it with at least 10 people on the same day, including my boyfriend then, and saying, I have discovered a gold mine. And, you know, this this gentleman talks exactly what I think, you know, where I think about what I think. And yeah, that's how that's how I got introduced to the group. And yeah, that's that. And the, the rest is history. The rest is history. Yes. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, it's there. There is a difference, isn't there, between hearing something or uh, studying something thirdhand and having actually experienced it yourself. There's just no comparison for actually having experienced a thing for yourself and figured it out, right? Uh, oh my God, yes, it is zero. There's zero uh, connection to what you experience and uh, what you study. In the sense, okay, zero is wrong. Twenty percent, maybe. Um, you can <laughs> probably. Sure. Yeah, you can probably know, uh, you know, what what uh, a disorder is, is, you know, stated in the DSM and they'll tell you the symptoms and, uh, you know, we learned the symptoms and we wrote the, you know, we memorize the symptoms sometimes and, uh, you know, we write them down and we understand the treatment and the modalities and all of that. But actually experiencing it, actually knowing and it's so different, it's so different. And the funniest part is I'm not sure any psychologist can actually tell you how to cure it. All they can do, and, and this is, you know, I, I believe this, and all a therapist, you know, can provide is being a great listener and encouraging you to probably be intuitive yourself without interfering too much in the process and just nudging you along a little bit. Because, you know, if they tell you do this, do that, this is who you are, this is who you are, and that's completely wrong. So, you know, that's that's that. So uh, basically, I want to clarify that I did my bachelor's in psychology. I did my master's in human resources. So, you know, I went the other way after that. But from what I have studied and from what I know, um, uh, I would disagree with the way medication is prescribed. I, I think uh, psychiatrists, at least I don't know about how it happens in the U.S., but a lot of psychiatrists in India prescribe medications uh, randomly sometimes without talking about the kind of therapeutic work that has to be done. And I have personally suffered with that. So that's one. Uh, some of the psychi- psychologists that I went to, and as I have, I have changed therapists, you know, in the start to understand. And there was one therapist that I found who was really good and I've stuck to her uh, you know, for the longest time. 
But uh, many of the therapists I found were uh, more interested in uh, prescribing things and talking about who you were and making judgmental statements about who you were and uh, stuff. And I didn't quite resonate with that part as well. And I think that could be really devastating to somebody who is, you know, new and learning because uh, if you have BPD, you tend to believe the worst in yourself anyway. And imagine going to a therapist who is also telling you stuff that's that's horrible about yourself. You know, that's that's just double the you know worst thing that can happen to you. If you're a layman like like I was going into it, um, you assume that they have the answers. So whatever they say, you just you just swallow it whole. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I guess the lesson here is that uh, you know trust them with a pinch of skepticism. That you know they're not gods. They, they're just normal people. Your health is really your responsibility, not theirs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's a, a very interesting thing in this regard. You know, uh, I realized when uh, I started going for therapy, when uh, I had borderline initially, like when in 2013, I think, yeah, when I started, um, I was so uh, eager to listen to everything the therapist said about me. And I would go and completely lap up everything and believe every single word, every single psychiatrist said, every single therapist said. And I would assume everything is about me. And I didn't have this uh, self-identity very strongly to you know, assert and say, think differently or anything of that sort. But I, I observed other people uh, you know, who were also taking therapy. I spoke to friends who used to go to therapy and they were not as rigid as me, you know, in terms of going, you know, completely believing my therapist is God and completely going the whole hog and saying, I'm going to do everything, whatever she says is right. And uh, all of that uh, from there, there, I have walked a long way in discovering, you know, this part of my own self uh, who with who I am and, you know, have my own opinions and thoughts. And I, you know, I can uh, have discussions and I can take what she says, uh, but I also have my own side of it and I listen to myself at the end of the day. So, but to come that far, it took a lot of work, you know, in between to rely on yourself. So I think I, I understand when a lot of people, uh, people with BPD initially rely a lot on other people because your sense of self is sometimes so shaky at that point. So, well, thank you for bringing that up. It's a teeter totter. It's a balancing act because on the one hand, recovery involves giving up the idea that you have the answers because obviously you don't because up until this point, everything you've done has only brought you heartache and pain. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you can't just trust anybody either. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So when you talk about this kind of this slow evolution of uh, coming into yourself and beginning to understand things and being able then Mm -hmm. to not just swallow a hook hole, but to say, let me look at this for a minute based on what I've learned up to now. Yep. And, uh, you know, is is it something that, that I find to be true and reliable or not? You're right. It, that is a growth thing. you yeah, got to grow yeah, into that. Yeah. And uh, there was an I, I think I had an epiphany around this uh, when uh, I, I think uh, a friend or I don't know if it was my therapist at that point. Uh, they I don't know the person, but they, uh, you know, asked me this question about my self-doubt. And they said that you are uh, running this entire division for this company. I was running, uh, learning and development for Bosch at that point. And they said, you're learning, you're running this entire division for this company. You take decisions all the time and people listen to you and rely on you. And you're very confident about that. Why are you so scared to take decisions for yourself? It's the same person. It's the same you. You know, if you can take decisions for an entire organization, how is it that you are so confused about yourself and you want to rely on somebody else? And they said something about something even more. They said everybody is confused and you just need to own up to your confusion, probably. 
And it's said in a way, I'm not using the exact words, but that, you know, gave me some sort of an epiphany at that point. And I started thinking, you know, probably I have this black, I had this black and white understanding of how sure people are as adults, because I thought I should always be sure of everything. And, you know, if I'm either I'm sure or I'm not sure at all, and there is no in between. But then, you know, I spent a lot of time observing other people who are adults and how they look at life. And I said, oh, my God, you know, everybody is as confused. And maybe being confused is is a part of being an adult. You know, it's it's natural. So I think I had to reparent myself in a lot of ways over the years. I also was confused with what is happiness. You know, when I when uh, a few years back, um, I used to confuse boredom sometimes for not being happy. And I I, fe- I think I always wanted that additional excitement uh, for happiness. And I couldn't appreciate the moments that were just there, you know, and it's it's nothing is happening. You know, it would it would be like something is, ha- you know, I have to create some sort of excitement right now because otherwise I'm not living my best life or something. Right. Like, something would nag me. And uh, again, that too took a lot of epiphanies and a lot of discoveries to say, you know what, boredom is just fine sometimes. You know, it's it's just cool. It's just okay to be bored. It's a very normal response. And it's a lot of people are bored most of the time. And some people are very boring too. But yeah, that's how it is. And you know. <laughs> Hey, stop talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Your writing is very profound a lot of times. And uh, I, I completely relate to some of the things you say. And it's like, wow. And uh, I think today, one of the answers that I was writing for somebody, uh, Brian, please stop me if I'm going off track or something, because I tend to do that when I get excited. So you can no, you're 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 the guest of honor. You can go off track as much as you want. <laughs> we have this uh, story in India about uh, this god Shiva, and uh, Shiva wanted to uh, teach people about enlightenment. So he's supposed to actually. Most people think he's a god, but he's actually a yogi who lived on the mountains, and he wanted to teach people enlightenment. And uh, there were seven sages who went to him, and uh, he said, "Okay, it will take you seven years to learn." And uh, his wife came to him and she said, I want to get enlightened too. So he said, sure. And uh, there's this beautiful discourse between Shiva and his uh, consort Sati, where he takes her on his lap, uh, makes her sit on his lap and he uh, sings to her or he tells, you know, he teaches her stuff by calling her my beautiful one, my loved one and all of that. And uh, Sati actually attains enlightenment in three days. And the sages take seven years to to master the same thing. And one of the sages uh, asked Shiva that, uh, how come she learned it in uh, three days, but we have to sit with you for seven years to learn this? And uh, so Shiva replies saying, that's because her level of surrender to me was so absolute that it was easy. There was no barrier in, in with, with her to, you know, for her to receive any information I gave. But you guys come with such a critical questioning mind. I had to spend a lot of time undoing all of that for then you wow. know, say something. So. Wow, you know there that is amazing because on two for two reasons. First of all, the seven year thing, <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it took me seven years to recover from borderline personality disorder. <laughs> but also, <laughs> yeah. but also, what you're talking about when you're talking about surrender is you're talking about authenticity. You're talking about sincerity, your sincerity and approach. And I talk about that all the time. Your length of recovery depends on your sincerity in your approach. Yep. Without it, you you may never recover. 
Yep. And in fact, my intended audience are people who are already receptive and sincere. So, man, what a great story for you to bring up. Thank you. I love the story. And, uh, you know, what you talk about authenticity and sincerity, I think uh, that's something I wanted to uh, discuss as well. Um, you were absolutely right in saying that the environment has to also support you. Uh, because um, I've had people molly coddling me sometimes with my disorder. Um, I've had it for the longest time, you know, being, uh, for example, when I got uh, divorced and I thought I hit, you know, uh, ground zero and my parents were not supporting me and everything, I would find men easily who would, who I could, who's on whose shoulder I could cry on and who would say to me that your husband was a bastard for leaving you and that's okay. And it was very easy to stay in that deluded state. So even even today, you know, like if I do something wrong and uh, my husband supports it, uh, the next day I will tell him that you cannot do that. You have to be very firm on your boundaries. If I violate <laughs> something, you have to tell me that this is not OK. You might be very sweet and doing it, you know, thinking you're doing me a good thing, but you're actually harming me. You're causing right. me a setback. A few days ago, I was talking to somebody from Lebanon and they said that on uh, the crazy scale, if the United States is one on the crazy scale, one being the, the minimum, mm -hmm. Lebanon is three on the crazy scale. Okay. But that if I travel to India, because I told this person that I want to go to India, <laughs> uh, this person said that, that India is like eight on the crazy scale. Dude, would you agree with that? Um, well, depends how you define crazy, I think. But uh, I'll tell you what. I think the Western world is uh, very left-brained, logical, and uh, straight-out, rational at all times, most of the times. But mm -hmm. Indians um, are much more, you know, I think right-brained, philosophical, creative. Uh, they, they're very, very accepting of a lot of crazy things in general because they probably... Ha they had some kind of rooting or grounding for it before, but today it's, you know, it's become stupid. Uh, but yeah, so you will see a lot of crazy things. For example, uh, there is this, uh, you know, a thing we do outside our house during festivals. Uh, we draw rangoli. You know, we make uh, uh, something with the rice flour and uh, we decorate it outside our houses. And uh, uh, the reason uh, people started doing that in the olden ages was because insects would come inside the house and uh, some of them would mix poison so that the insects would die outside, you know, and you can't just throw it outside the house. It looks dirty. So they would draw paint, uh, attractive things and they would leave it outside. That was one reason. The other was uh, my which my mom told me is that we would feed everybody, you know, during festival time, cows, birds, everything. And so the insects had to be fed, too. So they would draw, you know. Uh, rice, uh, flour, uh, stuff outside the house and, they, you know, decorate it so that the insects could eat. And today the mm. people have just followed it so blindly that if they don't have time to draw it outside their houses and we live in apartment buildings now, you know, you don't need to draw it. There are no insects outside. But if you <laughs> don't have that, people use stickers to stick it outside their houses, you know, mm. and without realizing where that tradition comes from. So a lot of thing has been distorted. You know, I'm very proud of my heritage and uh, I read a lot about Ayurveda and yoga and all of it. And some of it is profound. Right. I mean, profound. A lot of people come here to learn meditation and learn spirituality and learn a lot of lessons about life. But it's been distorted in my own country in such ways. And so, yeah, if you if you see crazy things going on, then, yes, that's because it's been distorted. So but yeah, Indians <laughs> are overall accepting as well. So, yes, it's going to be well, exciting. You should come here sometime. I, I tend to. Um... The, the person was uh, talking about 
you know, the craziness scale. Right. I think I think the person was doing it with affection. Uh, so oh, yes. As far as like the wow factor for, for a foreigner. But yeah, that's way, yes. I mean, uh, the, the, the sheer crowd, the sheer, you know, amount of lack of personal space here, that will surprise you. I mean, it, it, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be, a, you know, if, you, if you're coming first time from the U.S., yes. You're going to have a cultural shock of epic proportions. <laughs> the first time I traveled to India, and the only time, was in a book called Shantaram by Gregory David Roberts. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite books of all time, and I mean probably wow. probably my second favorite book of all time. So Shantaram was written by an Austrian or an Australian. I can't remember which because... In the book, he uses both to kind of throw people off. It's based on a true story, uh, loosely on a true story, mm-hmm. uh, this man who uh, got into heroin addiction mm-hmm. and drug dealing after his wife and his child died to kill his pain, he got into heroin. He escaped from prison twice, and on the second time, mm-hmm. he fled to Bombay. And I'm telling you what, man, the way <laughs> this guy writes about India. This is not a book written by an Indian reflecting the realities of India. No, it's I love it for the same reason I love Dandelion Wine. It's hmm. it's a poetic perspective toward India, a love letter written toward India, something that he has adopted as something that he loves. Uh, Shantaram is one of my friends. Uh, my best friend was reading it when I was in college and she kept telling me I should read it and I never got around to reading it. And now that you have talked about it so much, I think reading it from your perspective, you know, if I'm reading the book, I'm going to think about how Brian thought about it and read it. So it's going to be interesting. And ironically, my favorite book is an American book. It's Gone with the Wind. Oh, really? Yes. yes. What, do you, what do you love about Gone with the Wind? Everything. I love uh, Scarlett's portrayal. I love, I think I had the most massive crush on Red Butler. I mean, I, from my, I read it in when I was a teen, I think. And I was like, oh, my God, Red is awesome. And He's my uncle, you know, I just just saying. <laughs> 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 and the whole depiction of the Civil War and uh, everything was just fantastic. It was beautiful. It's very well written. One of my favorites. I think it was it was on par with Pride and Prejudice when I read it. So, yeah, it's considered a, a major classic here. Uh, what do you think about the racial themes throughout that book? You know, interestingly, uh, it wasn't. Uh, I it didn't strike me as a racist book of some sort. It it struck me as something that that was factual at that point of time, and the relationship between the, you know, owners and slaves uh, was just uh, from that period of time. It was it was differently looked at. You know, today I can look upon it and say, oh my God, that's so wrong. You know, that the whole thing is wrong. But when you're right. reading that book, you're in that era, and you know, in that reality of what is happening then, people didn't know any better, and. But the way the relationship was between, you know, um, these people was amazing. Like Scarlett, for example, talks about her uh, mammy and uh, she talks about how uh, she's like a mother to her and was beautiful. I think that was right. the first woman who won an Oscar, right? Uh, the African-American who won an Oscar. Uh, uh, you know, I w- it's interesting that you bring this up because I'm, a, I'm an avid movie collector. And I buy my movies from Voodoo.com, but I'm always like checking to see what they've got on sale there. And the other day they had Going with the Wind on sale for like six dollars. Wow. HD. So what I do is every time I'm interested in a movie, I'll go on to IMDb.com and I'll read like all the backstory on how the production on everything. There were people uh, actually offended 
offended by by that i i just have this one thing right i think uh, getting offended all the time is very exhausting firstly and uh, a lot of people who get offended aren't really doing anything about it so it's it's really you know uh, well hey listen sister you're 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 talking to the choir it's ridiculous i think it's reached an, a ridiculous pitch and i can barely stand to get on twitter anymore because yeah. that's all it is just people complaining and offended yeah i know it all ties into, <laughs> we're bringing this back around to borderline personality disorder. Yes. yes, The law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. Everybody else is the weather to you. Exactly. Mm. So don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. Look look inward. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to get back to that, uh, the one thing that I spoke about, uh, about uh, guys offering a shoulder because I thought I should say something. The interesting thing was the reason, uh, you know, that's not as glamorous as it sounds is because the shoulder is only there uh, for a while. It's only there till that person knows that you, you know, if at least it used to be in the past where I would expect them to completely take care of me. And th this was the way of charming people. I think most of the men I used to be at dating at that point of time used to get very charmed and used to get into a relationship space with me. And then I would always think that they abandoned me because they would leave. And I used to play this victim role in my head where I was this poor girl who was being abandoned by men. And uh, and that was that was really stupid because uh, I realized it was happening so many times to me at that in my you know early you know teens to twenties that. I realized that this is something not about other people, but it was about me. And um, I had this uh, boss who I work for in a company and I was crying about this one guy. And he tells me that uh, is the remote control of your life in his hands. And I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And he's like, your remote doesn't seem to be with you. You know, you're the only person who can make yourself feel anything mm -hmm. at all. But he has the remote control. He switches it on and you cry. And that was also some some sort of learning because it stuck with me and uh, I I have uh, grown over that feeling and so when you talk about uh, there being no such thing as abandonment I understand right. that because you you're an adult you know the very idea that somebody can abandon you is laughable right now but I I know where that comes from it comes from that child part of you that part of you that is probably have uh, has a lot of uh, these uh, distorted beliefs about the world and you know, that's not that's not just a child thing. That's an adult thing, too, in today's world, because of the way that music and movies and stuff like that present the idea of relationships. Right. That, you know, uh, Jerry Maguire, that very famous movie with uh, Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the famous line out of that? You complete me. <laughs> well, it's bullshit. That is bullshit. If you're in the mindset that you need somebody else to make you whole, you know, it's the very opposite of emotional health. A lot of people don't understand what genuine love or empathy is. They believe that they are, they understand it, but they don't. And uh, I think uh, the biggest culprit in my life, personally, personally in my life, the biggest culprit in uh, making me think in distorted ways, when I, even when I grew up, was the media. Uh, the movies and the books that I've read uh, you know, I, I grew, I, I thought I was entitled to this la 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 love version of whatever, you know, Disney was selling or books were selling <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, uh, when I would not get that, I kept blaming everything on the outside 
and saying, uh, this is so wrong. This is not how it happens. And I remember the, my ex-husband asked me this question. He said, uh, do you even understand what marriage is? Or are you just, you know, hoping for a romantic fairy tale every day? And at that point, it didn't make sense. But much later, I felt, oh, my God, the poor guy. You know, I, I, I put him through so much because, you know, I don't think I understood what love is. I didn't I don't think I had any idea or any clue about it. And all I was wanting was, you know, excitement and living some distorted version of what media tells you. So, sure. Uh, yeah, I think people should go on a media cleanse of those kind of movies. You know, I for a long time, I stopped watching romantic comedies. I stopped reading anything that had stuff like that to just think about you know and and really look at real life people and talk to real life people and understand what what they mean by love what they mean by marriage this was one one whole year i've actually done a lot of interviews with a lot of my friends and asking them about how they make marriage what is it what is it what is it and trying to understand it for myself you know uh, a group of people that i look up to myself are old people i love old people mm-hmm. who who are successful and I'm not talking about, um, you know, having millions of dollars or anything like that. I'm talking about being successful at life. Mm-hmm. And if you can take a walk with somebody like that, you'll learn more in an hour-long walk than you will from a thousand books. Absolutely. You know, I love poetry, but I would say uh, probably 98% of poetry reflects distorted thinking. Yeah. I have a question uh, with respect to this uh, for you, Brian. And uh, so, you know, uh, as BPD grows, you have a lot of distorted thinking, which, of course, comes from the you know two core distorted thinkings. But you have a lot mm-hmm. of distorted ideas. And uh, sometimes when your distorted thinking starts to crumble or break, for example, it can be painful. Uh, I have experienced that because the first time, for example, uh, I started understanding that love is probably not what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. It was very, very painful. And I uh, rebelled against that idea. So I think I read this in Scott Peck once. Uh, it's uh, Scott Peck has this beautiful definition for love. He says, uh, two people are not in love when they cannot live without each other. But two people who are completely okay to live without each other, and they're completely happy being without each other, yet choose to be in each other's company, are people in love. Because that's not attachment-based, that's not need-based. It's based on genuine, genuine you know, well-being, affection for each other. I could not have said it better myself. Yeah. So in the road dress travel, right? So when I read that initially and I, I thought, what what the fuck? You know, this is, this is you know, it made me uncomfortable because I was in this path where I was unraveling a lot of things. So I threw that book aside and I said, you know, this is not it. And uh, I still clung on to my distorted notions. And sometimes, sometimes I still do. I think I'm in that phase where you describe in your stages where you're ruminating and meditating and letting going of, you know, a lot of the start of thinking. I think I'm on that stage. But yeah, so it's painful sometimes, you know, it's really painful to think that something you've understood about the world is so miserably wrong. It puts you in the state of, oh, my God, and I don't know what to do. Sometimes I rebel against it. Sometimes I try to ignore it. But then it keeps coming back in my head because once you've learned the truth about something, it doesn't. You can't go back. Yeah, you can't go back. Right. And it takes hold in your head like crazy and you realize oh fuck now there's no escaping it but over the years slowly slowly the truth becomes digestible it becomes easier and today you know when i watch romantic comedies i sound a little bit cynical you know i say oh this is bullshit and my friend is like what the fuck has happened to you and i'm like (laughs) so my question is did that happen to you and like how did you cope with it like you know because 
All right. So I was, uh, you know, I, I say that it took me seven years to recover. Two years were, the first two years were total garbage. They were total lost because I was seeing somebody who wasn't helping me and not giving me answers. Mm-hmm. For the last five years, I was in the deepest, deepest depression of my life. And it wasn't because, because of chemical reasons. Mm-hmm. It was because of the what you just said. Oh, uh, that. The realization that everything that I thought that I knew for a certainty was false. Mm-hmm. And that it had caused so much damage in my life that w- that was preventable. That was preventable. I t- you know, I was just having a conversation with somebody the other day about my dad. Mm-hmm. When I came to accept the true nature of what my dad had done to me, mm-hmm. you know, I I love my dad. I admire him for so many reasons. You know, I get I get so many people beating me up about my stance on my father. Um, it's not a decision that I made lightly to not have any contact with my father, and it's not something contrary to what the critics will say that I've put in place because I'm angry at him. Yeah. It's something I've put in place because I love him and it's the only tool I have to help him maybe come to his senses and start looking inward. But just looking at that uh, relationship with my father and realizing truly, truly the gravity of what he had done to me as a five, six-year-old, seven-year-old, the weight of abuse that that poor boy endured you know, and coming to accept that that is, that is just what it was, whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. And then digesting that, you know, that took five years. And there are still times when I'll get a thought of my father, some pleasant memory or something of my father. Mm-hmm. And what is my inclination in that moment of weakness is to reach out to him or something. But then I have to sit down with myself Remind myself of what my priority is. What is my priority? My priority is staying emotionally healthy. Never again returning to that cesspool of emotional distorted thinking, of uh, you know emotional unhealth and distorted thinking. Mm-hmm. And then I think, do I, you know, if I love my father, what what do I have to do with him? You know, sometimes love, mm-hmm. sometimes just the nature of love of genuine love takes your choice out of the equation. Yes. You know, sometimes genuine love says you have to do something this way. Mm-hmm. You no longer have a choice. You can choose to do it anyway, as long as you're willing to be uh, emotionally unhealthy and you're willing to um, support other people's emotional unhealth. But if your priority is, is the genuine well-being of yourself and of other people, sometimes Genuine love says this is the only option you have, and and you got to do it. The depression was was really heavy. But as I was telling this other person the other day that I was talking to, it was not the kind of depression that is hopeless. Correct. Yeah. It was the kind of depression that was digesting realities that I did not like. Yeah. Sort of makes you feel like a grown up. <laughs> As profound as the depression was, I knew I was on the right track at the same time, and so I had hope. Yes. I had hope that on the other side of this, things will be much better. And here I am. So I that's, that's, stayed and it's very And it's very interesting, because, uh, I, and I have this uh, thought when you said this, because you said you had your reaction to learning about truth 
was probably different from my reaction, initial reaction to learning truth, right? So you went through depression. You didn't, you know, you didn't try to rebel or fight against it. Well, I did. I mean, that's what depression is. I mean, kind of, uh, you know, when this intense, uh, like, no, this, this cannot be true Correct. because I don't want it to be true. Well, if you catch yourself saying at any time, this is your inner dialogue I'm talking about. Huh? If at any time you catch your inner dialogue saying, no, this can't be true because I don't want it to be true. Well, then it's probably true. Yeah. And you're, and yeah, you're, exactly. that's exactly. denial. That's denial exactly. in play. Exactly. And it requires a lot of guts to, you know, step up that, you know, increase that volume of your inner voice and listen to it more than what you're listening to the distorted. And surprisingly, I never had that inner voice very strongly at my start, but today it's, it blares inside me. I still do, you know, I still want to indulge in stupid fantasies sometimes, which I know will lead me to a path of pain. And uh, that voice inside me tells me, but it, it's important to be aware as long as, you know, so if you can, you can watch a rom-com and sigh all you want and say, oh, it, it's only problematic when you start expecting your life to reflect it and demand that your life should re reflect everything that you want. I don't know about you, but uh, I had a huge sense of entitlement. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, growing up, I think this was fueled by my parents because uh, I remember this when I was a child and I would cry. My parents would uh, immediately want to shut me up uh, and my dad would buy, you know, toys for me, no matter how badly I behaved. <laughs> and he would just stuff, stuff me with toys. So, you know, and I think he, did, he thought he was doing a good thing, but he actually spoiled me in the process. And uh, for me, uh, I was uh, in Europe with my uh, current husband. We were, you know, before we got married, we took a trip. And I remember, yeah. you know, walking somewhere and uh, uh, it was really hot and I kept complaining about it. And he made this remark. He said, you know, I noticed something and he said it. He said it not accusatorily, but he just said it, you know, as a matter of fact. He said, Do you know, I noticed something about you. You are so not OK with discomfort of the slightest sort. <laughs> and uh, and I said, what do you mean? And he's like, uh, you know, I'm feeling all of the things you're feeling, too, but I wouldn't state it. And I said, why not? He said, because I don't follow the environment by bringing that up because, you know, it, it spoiled the day for everybody else. And, you know, you have to bear it sometimes in life. And that struck me really hard because I realized I was somebody who was not OK with disappointment at all. I felt it was a bad thing that was happening to me. It's terrible because, you know, I had never been allowed to face disappointment as a child. And in a way, that is abuse too. You know, I, I know it's it doesn't sound like abuse because your parents are spoiling you, but... Well, it's it neglect. It is neglect. It's, it's it, not teaching me things, not preparing me, you know, in some way, right. you know, for life. I, uh, of course, I have uh, sympathy for them now because I know why they did that. They were very deprived in their childhood. They came from a small town village, so, you know, they wanted me to have the best of everything, so I think overcompensating They, they were compensating. That. Yes, yes. So, but this really taught me, and I I, I, um, I realized at that point of time how entitled I was about a lot of things, and how I demanded things should go my way, and I would throw a fit if I didn't get it, if I didn't get what I wanted, and I realized that that's something that I have to, that was such a profound um, epiphany for me, and uh, yeah, and, and ever since, I've not completely overcome it, there are some times I'm on the verge of throwing tantrums even today when I want it my way, but a voice inside me grows louder and says, okay, you know, this is not right. And I want my husband, you know, to reinforce that. So I keep telling him, you have to tell me that that's not okay. You you have to tell me because if I do something wrong and he's like, you know, he sometimes indulges me, I get scared. I, I'm actually terrified that he shouldn't indulge me because I don't want <laughs> that anymore. 
you know. Well, you know, he sounds like good people. He sounds like good people. I've never talked to you about your husband. I've seen pictures of him, but uh, <clears throat> he sounds to me like a good one. Uh, he is. He is the best. So the reason I brought up that depression point is because, uh, you know, I feel that if somebody pro- possibly uh, reads uh, the stages that you talk about and they also expect to feel, you know, they also expect to have depression as the final stage, that would be wrong, right? Because it might it might respond differently in different people. People might have a different uh, way of coping with stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole the whole reason is because in order for a person to obtain a comprehensive, full understanding of the whole disorder, to put the puzzle together all, you know, so that every single aspect of it makes sense to them and does not conflict and does not conflict with any other puzzle piece, your path there is going to be different than mine because... My circumstances were different than yours. Yes, yes. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Like I said, that this one, two, three, do this, that sells a lot of books. But I'm not interested in selling you books. I'm interested in helping people get there. You know, I've tried to explain. I Maybe, I, you know, it's probably a fault, some kind of fault in my uh, explanation or, or whatever. But th- there are there is no one, two, three. I I want people to understand that accurate education and insight, that's the cure. However you get there, yes, that's the cure. Yes. <laughs> You're, you may take a different direction than I did. Like, for example, um, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a lady, and um, she asked me when my hit and rock bottom event was. Yeah. Was it before or after I went to Arizona? So, re- remember, I went to Arizona, and I met a guy who gave me some profound insights that changed my life. Yeah, yes, you've mentioned that. It wasn't until like you know, maybe six months after that that I had my hitting rock bottom event. So I had my profound epiphanies, Yeah. which you know led me to recovery. But would I have recovered without my hitting rock bottom event? No. So a, a lot of people, it happens the other way. A lot of, For a lot of people... They have their hitting rock bottom event, yeah. Which then later they they have their epiphanies that lead to their recovery eventually. You see what I'm saying? So in the order that it happened for me is not necessarily the normal order for for most people. I would say. Yes, yes. yes. And uh, sometimes I and I want to say this because uh, with rock bottom is because I uh, had a divorce and I had to quit my job because I was in a very, very bad state in 2012, 2013. And I thought that was rock bottom. And I I thought at that point that life couldn't get worse. But I did stupid things even after that. I got into, you know, relationships in a hurry just, just to make myself feel better. Uh, You know, just because the first guy who gave me comfort, the first guy who gave me a shoulder, I would get into it. Uh, In fact, I think at some point I got into... A relationship with a woman I, although I'm not I'm not uh, even bisexual because she liked me and she wanted me so I entertained I, I and I confused myself and I thought oh my god maybe I should get bisexual somehow you know I should, I should get it. yeah and I realized that was rock bottom for me I lost both of these people who were really good friends who became really good friends but I it turned romantic because of our dynamic or whatever and I lost you know, I lost that guy forever. He was, you know, one guy forever. And then I lost his friend forever. And I, and that was, 
hitting rock bottom not once but multiple times in the process. Well, well, let me. Can, do you mind if I throw something in here? You know, just for people listening, I would kindly like to make a correction that you, you, there there aren't like multiple hitting rock bottom events. I think what you're talking about is that you know what you assumed to be rock bottom was not really your rock bottom. Yes, exactly. Sorry, that's okay. what I meant. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So for I just want to clarify that for people, you 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 know when you hit rock bottom, that that you can't go any further down, but. In the lead up to that, there may be a lot of false rock bottoms where you're like, okay, I can't take any more of this. Well, you know, you may find that your pain tolerance is is much deeper than you ever thought. Yes, perfect. That is perfect. Actually, what you're describing is exactly what I wanted to say. It's that, you know, the life events seem like a rock bottom sometimes that you lose your job, you lose, you know, you're getting a divorce and everything right. is going wrong. And technically it looks like a rock bottom, but maybe... It's not yet rock bottom for you until you feel, oh, my God, this is this is wrong. This is hell. This is something. And I think it's characterized by this one thing which says right now I have no way left but to, you know, understand what is going on with me, except that something is wrong and fight it. That, that acceptance, I think that 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 is very, very crucial. I would say that the um, the dead giveaway for a false rock bottom is when you're still you still kind of have hope that you're going to save a relationship or something by working on yourself. You you're either doing it entirely for yourself or it's not going to happen. Another thing I'd like to say is that just because you're kind of like um kind of lighthearted relationships and stuff like that does not mean, you know, that you're backsliding. You know, first of all, I don't like the term backsliding because I don't think it's a real thing. You can't know less now than you knew yesterday. When I was recovering, I knew that I was moving forward. I mean, I knew that I was moving in the right direction. So, I mean, I had a lot of, uh, you know, fun in my apartment, in my bachelor apartment. I had a lot of girls come over. I was very active with them, let's put it that way. But, I, you know, I made it clear to them that I had a borderline personality disorder and that I was, my priority was recovering and that I wasn't going to get into any committed relationships. So they knew this when they come over. You know, it wasn't like I was teasing them into thinking that they were going to get into a, you know, I was going to be their boyfriend or anything like that. So just pleasant distraction is not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're, as long as you are certain that you're moving in the right direction, you know, because there's a period where you're just making mental connections. You're just trying to kind of put the puzzle together in your head. You know, the way you described mental distraction, the, that very thing is, uh, that very thing actually shows in some way, ironically, that you're healthy. Because when I was in an unhealthy place and I went on, uh, uh, you know, to date people, all I wanted was attachment. I wasn't, you know, looking for conversation or fun or friendship or anything. So the very fact that somebody can stay casual in a realistic sense without, you know, hurting another person or demanding something from them, I think that's very healthy to do. You know, it's it's it might not be for everybody. Not everybody would want a casual relationship. No, no, it certainly wouldn't be for everybody. And I would say probably uh, it, it probably would not be yes. for more women than for men. because Definitely not. Definitely. And especially if that's your bent, you know, if you're bent on that kind of uh, – possession of being possessed or being or possessing somebody else it's probably you probably want to avoid it altogether to be honest yeah yeah and so most of my 
bad relationships and I call them bad uh, with no disrespect. All of those people are still really, really important. They taught me a lot, but I call it bad just for the simplicity of the term. All of them started with huge, very high levels of intensity, extreme levels of intensity. They would start with, you know, oh, my God, I need you and I need you. And I, I, I never they don't last as far as I know. You know, they, they don't they they are not relationships that, you know, they're movie relationships. They might not last relationships that really last, in my opinion. And I could be wrong is where you've taken time to really get to know each other, where you you've really seen the other person for what they are. You've seen their pluses and their flaws and you know that that person is not perfect and you're not, you know, hoping to be consumed by them or, you know, and, you know, when you started this conversation, you asked me about the romance in my marriage and, you know, I, and I've seen, you know, we've, we've seen three years of, we've seen all of it. We've seen realism. We've seen, you know, we've known each other really, really well. And it started really slowly. We were good friends and that's what we were for a whole year. And I've never felt uh, that any relationship was as stable as this one. And that could be because of my recovery uh, to such a degree as well. But I, I believe anything that starts with, enti- you know, full passion and full of, you know, I can't live without you. Those relationships don't last for a really long time. Or at least they give you a lot of pain if they do. So, yeah, kind of. I think those kind of relationships tend to be born in um, infatuation. Yes. And kind of sexual desire, which is not a bad thing. You know, I, I think it's kind of a spice of life. I, Correct. You know, if you're in a position for it, it's thrilling. I mean, there's there are a few things in life. And your ex-wife sounds like, oh, my God, such a lovely, such a mature person. Diana, right? Her name is? Yeah, Diana. Oh, wow. I, 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 I had tears when I was reading some the letters that you shared, you know, that she's written to you. I, I, I was I completely had tears. Like, I think she seems like a beautiful person. And thank you for sharing so much, so many details. I mean, it can't be easy, but thank you. So much. Well, you know, I, it, I, I do it out of respect for her because I, I could not empathize with what she was going through then. And now I can. And she demonstrated a tremendous, I mean, just an unbelievable level of love for me, of genuine love. Yeah. That I never got to, to thank her for. Will she ever hear these programs? Will she ever hear my name and or and hear about this work I'm doing? I don't know. I'm pretty sure she will. Well, I I don't know. Um, because you know, if you're a happy person, she's remarried now. Yeah. She's been married now to this guy for almost almost as long as we were married. Wow. Hmm. So you know, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a f- forgotten thing in the past, but. Uh, she probably doesn't even care, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, she's, you know, she's probably done her stuff. And I don't um, think uh, you ever stop care. I don't think you ever stop caring about people you loved, right? Like, I mean, you might not be attached to them, and you want nothing from them, but you don't stop caring about them. So no, no, and you know that's what genuine love is. Like I've said, uh, it's still there afterwards. So I, I'm sure that she uh, loves me as as a part of her past, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah. but no, what, what she did was, uh, yeah, it did take courage and it took an unbelievable amount of insight. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, the, the most amazing thing to me about it is that if you're ever in a stressful situation, yeah, mm-hmm. let's say you're in a war zone, mm-hmm. like in a Nazi concentration camp mm-hmm. and you're trying to imagine what you need to do now. That will be the best thing for your life in five years. 
In that situation, it's almost impossible. Like, how can you think <laughs> clearly about what you're going to need in five years when things are so bad right now? Yeah. But that's what she did. Yeah. Mm. With, with everything that was happening, she somehow, she was able to look ahead like five years into the future and say, yeah. this, this, and this is what I have to do today. Yeah. To me, that that is just that is like other level stuff there, from in my opinion. So I was very fortunate. She was a gift from the universe, possibly, you know, for you to come to the stage. Well, she is the gift from the universe for everybody that is ever influenced by her, even through me, for example. I love hearing you talk about her because you speak about her with so much love and respect. That's amazing. You know, it's beautiful. That's, that's, you know, there's one last thing I actually wanted to uh, talk about and uh, bring about in this conversation. And uh, this is probably related in somewhat uh, to what you said. So when um, sometimes when I, you know, used to think about why do I have this problem? You know, why, why do, did I have to go through all of this? And when I have no answers and, you know, I have to just say, okay, life is just like a deck of cards. You have to play with what you get. And it hurts sometimes, you know, you, it hurts to make you feel like, okay, you're in this position and you cry and you weep. But there's, um, I don't know whether, you know, there is inherent purpose in life. I don't know about, uh, you know, too much about religion and God, but I've always, always uh, believed that my prayers and, you know, having faith uh, has helped I, 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 I don't know if you had this in your experience, but a lot of times when I have cried and I have prayed and I've sat down and I said, I need, I need help. I, I would just sit down and I would go down on my knees and I didn't know who I was talking to, but I would say, I need help. I need clarity. Please help me. You know, I, I, I really, really am suffering and I need help. I need, and, I, and I, my intention is to be the best. And my intention is to not hurt anybody. Please tell me what to do. And I would, uh, some you know miraculously get insights of some sort i had help from somebody or i had somebody walk into my life who would suggest something and it was beautiful so i've i've still not stopped uh, this element of faith that i have um i don't know whether there is a supernatural power and i don't think i'm qualified to discuss this but uh, yeah uh, i think it's an important part of my recovery is uh, you know focusing on faith meditation prayer and just just asking for guidance whenever possible, and that's that's helped me a lot actually in in you know getting better. There are two things I can say about that. Well, there there's a lot I could say about that. I'm gonna um, constrain it to two things. One thing is that even atheist doctors and scientists uh, admit that there is, that prayer has real benefits. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'll say about this is that when I went into recovery, I was already a God-fearing person. Right. I already had a solid foundation of what I think God expects of me and expects of everybody and, um, you know, of who he is as a a person. Mm -hmm. So when I went into therapy, one real problem I had was this fact that, well, wait a second. If prayer works for everybody, even people who aren't living the way God wants them to live, Mm -hmm. 
is it just some kind of psychological placebo? Going into it, I was certain, concretely certain about my belief in God, that he he is a reality just like gravity is a reality and everything else is a reality. Yeah. But wait a second. If other people are benefiting from prayer who are not, not living the way that he accepts and all this stuff. Yeah. Is prayer just a placebo? Yeah. And if prayer is just a placebo, is God just a placebo? Is belief in God just a placebo? Well, without going into too much detail, Mm -hmm. my conclusion is that God is real. Mm -hmm. He wants everybody to have a relationship with him. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what is needed for that? What is needed for that is clear, accurate thinking. Mm-hmm. So anybody trying to recover from any kind of um, substance abuse or emotional disorder or anything like that who prays to God, no matter what they're doing in their lives, no matter who they are, no matter what their background is, when they pray to God and they say, I want help being better from this disorder or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's that falls within his will. That harmonizes with what his will for us is. That that we be healthy so that possibly in, at some future date we can have a really tight relationship with him. We've really covered a lot of ground, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I feel like I was talking to somebody who I could understand so well and who I could relate to so well. So thank you so much, Brian. I think I am extremely privileged to have discovered you. I and I'm not saying this just because it's the end of the podcast. I wanted to say it all the all this while. I think it was a lucky, lucky day that I discovered you. And because yeah, you, you thank you so much. You you're doing so much good. You're you know enriching so many people's lives. And yeah, I. I respect that, and I, I I love that I'm a part of this group. Man, I'm just uh, you're the standard. Oh you're my the God, standard thank that you. I, thank you, Brian. That I, thank uh, you so much. That I go from. Oh my God, well, I'll cry if you say more. Oh well, in that case, uh, you know, your eyes, your eyes are like the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> okay.